Tina Easton, one of those James Bond themes for your eyes only. Very good morning to Daniel Mumby. How are you today? I'm not too bad, thank you, Richard. Good. How are you? Uh, not bad at all. Enjoying a few days off work, which is never a bad thing. Lucky so. you. Yes, yes. Um, we were just uh, trying to remember how Sheena got to fame, and it was, of course, Esther Ranson's big time, uh, the first reality pop star of Britain, possibly. Yeah, so from that point of view, Esther Ranson has a lot to answer for. Yes, indeed, yes. <laughs> OK, well, it's a busy week uh, for films at the uh, Annick Playhouse, some of which are in the top ten, so we will rattle through these. Uh, but let's start with Tuesday, shall we? It's uh, Transformers. Well, we won't say too much about that, shall it's we? It's horrendous. Don't go and see That's, it. That's uh, Tuesday know. afternoon, 2 o'clock. Bad Teacher is on Tuesday evening at 7.30. Which isn't funny, and Cameron Diaz's career is clearly going down the pan. Right. Uh, Cars 2, that's in the top ten at the moment. That's on Wednesday um, afternoon at 2 o'clock. And then Wednesday evening at 7.30, The Tree of Life. Which I think is a flawed but well-meaning work by Terence Malick. I mean, I, I think it's he's a filmmaker who has never quite recaptured the form of his first two films, Badlands and Days of Heaven. So, as a piece of cinema, it's interesting. I just think that, you know, if you're not familiar with his work, you will struggle to uh, to stay through it, and the dinosaur sequence in it is a bit silly. Right, so, Annick 510785, if you fancy going to see any of those films. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'll put the mortings in Berwick. Uh, today, 2.30 and 7. Tomorrow at 2.30. Tuesday, 2.30 and 8. It's Harry Potter. Which we'll come to. Yep. Monday um, evening, interesting one, Half Price Monday, Vidal Sassoon at the movie. Which is the best uh, film this year about a hairdresser, let's put it that way. <laughs> said too much there. <laughs> right, it's uh, actually not bad, but yes. it's you know, very niche. Yes. Wednesday afternoon, uh, we're going to come to this one in the top ten as well, which is Mr Popper's Penguins, that's going to be on at 2.30. And then on Wednesday evening, The Way. Which is the latest from Emilio Estevez, who is... Um, related in some way to Charlie Sheen and in stars Martin Sheen, who of course is Charlie Sheen's father. It's it's a very sort of middle of the road um road movie set in um the Himalayas where um Martin Sheen's uh, plays a, a middle aged character whose uh, young son has has died and he goes back for following the last steps of his son to come to terms with the grief. It's it's sort of it's a sort of sundancey film where it's all about the characters rather than the story. So you yeah. might like it. Right, okay. We've probably uh, just about mentioned most of the top ten through that lot, haven't we? So shall we start? Number ten is Cars 2. Which is disappointing, and the central problem is that it feels like John Lasseter made it for himself rather than the audience. I don't doubt that if you've got young children, if you take them to see it, they will find it pleasant and diverting. But the thing is, they won't remember it in anything like the detail that they will for the Toy Story series or Finding Nemo, which, like I said last week, for me is the high watermark of Pixar. Right. Dreaded 3D word, Glee, the 3D concert. Now, you remember a few months ago now when we talked about the Justin Bieber 3D movie? Yeah. And I, I said that the problem with it was not anything to do with the music, it was to do with the way in which the music was presented. Because now, I don't know anything really about Justin Bieber, I understand that you you quite like his music. Yes, I do. Yeah. And it, my problem with the Justin Bieber film was not the music, it was the way that it was presented in a very sanitised, very highly choreographed way so that you never got a sense that you were watching a genuine performance. And I think that there's the same basic problem with Glee. I mean, I'm not a Glee fan at all. I think that a lot of the, the songs from that show are, are obnoxious and just very badly sung and you can clearly hear auto-tune on nearly all of their stuff. And the 3D doesn't do anything to change that. I mean, I don't deny if you're a fan of the TV series that you might enjoy it, but no, 
stick to the TV series. Okay, at number eight, it's Mr. Popper's Penguins. Which is, as the RT synopsis says, it's, you know, blandly inoffensive and thoroughly predictable. I mean, I think Jim Carrey has learned to turn down the gurning aspect of his performance, of his comedy over the last ten years as a result of, well, both getting older and doing more serious work like The Truman Show and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I know you're still not a big fan of him, but I no. think he has got better. <laughs> it's, 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 no, it's, it's all right. That's the yeah. only way of putting it. Okay. Number seven, a fairly good critical acclaim for Super 8. Yeah, I think it's good fun. I mean, I, I said last week that the rest of my family went to see this when they were down in the West Country and they really liked yeah. it. I think that it's it's nice to see J.J. Abrams paying homage to all of Spielberg's 70s and 80s work while having some form of identity. I think in the end, whether or not you like it falls on whether you saw all the Spielberg films the first time round and whether you think it's an affectionate homage or whether it's just too familiar with just better special effects. But it is good fun. Okay, uh, number six, Spy Kids. Total garbage. Um, another 3D film with, well, 3D plus aromascope, which, you know... Oh, smell. yes, I remember that. Yeah, yes. just further proof... Smelly vision. The, yes, just further proof of the, the gimmickiness of modern Hollywood is saying, well, we can't tell stories anymore, so we'll just have to throw loads of stuff at you on screen to make you forget that you're watching a plotless film. It's totally nonsensical. Right, talking about telling stories, uh, Harry Potter, number five. You go first. Well, I think it's a great book, shame about the film. Fair enough. I think <laughs> I think it's arguably one of the better ones in the series, but I've only read up to ask. I've only seen up to ask about, and I haven't read any of the books, so we shall see. Right, number four, the Smurfs, which is horrible. I mean, it's you know you take the now stock mold of doing cartoon character adaptations, which is that you take them out of their cartoon world and put them in the real world to interact with human beings. So if you've seen Garfield, either of the two Alvin and the Chipmunks films, of which the third one is coming out this Christmas, or most recently Hop with Russell Brand, you've got no need to see this most because it's exactly the same story again and again and again. The only even faintly good thing about it is Hank Azaria, but he gets dealt a very rum deal with no good lines. Right. I can see I'm going to have to put the Smurf song on before the end. Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, Cowboys and Aliens. Which is disappointing. It's a classic example of a blockbuster where the whole appeal is in the title. And there isn't, after you get over the initial thrill of seeing, you know, Daniel Craig and Harrison Ford together, you know, James Bond and Han Solo or James Bond and Indiana yeah. Jones, whatever you want to do it, after you get over that thrill, there isn't much left to keep your interest. I mean, I think John Favreau is a very reasonable blockbuster director. I mean, he made the first two Iron Man films and Zathura, which was actually quite an interesting sort of spiritual sequel to Jumanji. Many people consider it to be better than Jumanji. The problem is that it's just a little bit too shallow in terms of its premise to follow through with the goods. Yeah. Number two, um, certainly my film of the year so far, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which I think is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, really, really good CGI, well worth going to see, and a good story needed to be told. Well, yeah, I, I shall take your word from it. I mean, I've only seen the first film of the Planet of the Apes series, so I've got a lot of catching up to do. Yes. But I, I may well catch this. It's not in the cinemas, then on DVD. Yeah. Did you ever see any of the TV series? No, I wouldn't know. That was a bit Which before my on, time. on and on and on <laughs> and on, like all good American TV Do series did. Do you remember the, um, the Simpsons episode where Troy McClure's in the musical version of Planet of the Apes? No. Say, so, no. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. I want a second opinion. You're also lazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny. You should kick right. Number one by a country mile this week in terms of takings, the Inbetweeners movie. I'm not surprised it's number one, whatever I'm, we think of it. Yeah, I'm not surprised it's number one because, you no, know, obviously all of the fans would go and see it on opening weekend and I wouldn't be also surprised if it drops down the top ten pretty quickly because it's it's quite poor. I mean, I, I get, as with the Glee film, 
I've no doubt that if you love the TV series, you'll leap to its defense and say that it's very faithful or that it does something interesting with the characters. But to the casual viewer like me, it does look like an extended TV episode with the same old plot about sending the cast on holiday, which is always an indication that the TV series has run out of steam. And it's, in terms of its visuals, it is essentially Kevin and Perry go large with more swearing. Right, I think it's probably just about the most commented movie I've seen on Facebook in recent weeks, but I guess All that's people under indicative of the audience, isn't it? Yeah, no, I've, I, I don't have any problem with, you know, the TV series, I don't have any problem with people going to see yeah. it, I just don't think it's any good. Right. So, recommendations this week? Well, uh, just scanning through, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, obviously, um, Super 8, and as an outside bet... Well, Cowboys and Aliens is disappointing, but if you want something completely escapist, then it probably will satisfy on an effects level. And I guess if you're the only person left in uh, the northeast of England who hasn't been to see um, Harry Potter, you really should go and see. With that the exception as well. of me, because I have a applause. <laughs> right. Okay. We'll do our cult movie after a little bit of music. Lionheart Radio. Blue Edge and Dance Me to the End of Love. Now, I've been scratching my head trying to remember if I can actually went to see a Razorhead, and, you know, I still can't remember, so... Well, I think you I have to reach the conclusion I didn't, but uh, I didn't recognise anything from the, uh, the write-up on it. Other than it was very interesting to hear it said here, the United States Library of Congress uh, deemed it culturally, historically or aesthetically significant in 2004. Which so why was that? Well, because it's a fantastic film and one of the best of the 1970s. Right, um, tell us all about so it. So Eraserhead, 1977, debut film by David Lynch. We talked a few, must be a few months ago now, about Blue Velvet, yeah. which is one of his great, which is a really great film. I mean, I, I said at the time that I consider him to be America's greatest living filmmaker, and, uh, and many people would agree with me. There has actually been a story released in the press this week in which Abel Ferrara, who's a, another famous American director, made things like Bad Lieutenant and Driller Killer, put a rumour out that David Lynch has actually retired from filmmaking to go off and become an artist and to, to raise money for his foundation. Now, I don't know whether or not that's true, because Lynch hasn't confirmed it yet, but if that is the case, then you... No, let the retrospective start with the razor head because this is where you have this yeah. is where everything started. Started out as a short film which would have been made with a small startup grant from the American Film Institute, which was in its infancy in the early seventies. No, it had been set up primarily to encourage new filmmakers to make money, but then they they started a whole interview program where they they did sort of three hour long recorded interviews with Alfred Hitchcock and Francois yeah. Truffaut and so forth, with most of which you can see in clips on YouTube, and they're very interesting in terms of insightful craft. Uh, so started off with him getting a grant in about 1970 to make a short film about adultery which was going to last about 40 minutes but he ended up taking about six years to make it Gosh. and yeah so he was you know six years basically in a shed with next to no money sets being continually destroyed and rebuilt calling in favors from friends and family yeah. to appear as cast members eventually resulting in a rough cut of four hours which he then edited down to 90 minutes for its release in early 1977 when it was released, it did pretty much no business at all, which, considering that this was the summer of Star Wars, is perhaps no surprise, because everyone was going to see Star Wars. Mm. I remember going to see that. Yes, and I, I envy you being able to actually see it on the big screen the first time round. There's actually a story about um, William Friedkin, the guy who directed The French Connection and The Exorcist, his new film uh, called Sorcerer, which is a remake of The Wages of Fear. Uh, there was one theatre, I think it might have been the... Um, 
the Empire in um, New York City where Star Wars had been running back to back for three months so, and the cinema said okay we've had enough of Star Wars let's bring something else and they put Sorcerer on for a week and nobody went to see it so they actually took Sorcerer off and brought Star Wars back and it played for another four months. Oh those great days when you only had one screen at a cinema. Yeah. I remember them. Yeah but, it, but it's the interest, it's you know, the way that Hollywood had sort it's, of changed with yeah. you know, the blockbuster coming in. So while it didn't do any business the first time around, it was put on the midnight movie circuit in the same way that the Rocky Horror Picture Show yeah. was or Night of the Living Dead was, because it was that sort of time when the midnight movie circuit was had quite a lot of power, particularly in New York and London. And while it was on the midnight movie circuit, it was seen by Mel Brooks, who, are, who subsequently asked Lynch to make The Elephant Man, which doesn't actually feature Mel Brooks's name on the credits, because they thought if they put his name on, people would think it was a comedy rather than a very yeah. beautiful film. Um, so the plot is... It's very difficult to describe, not because there's so much of it, as was the case with O Lucky Man, but because, as with a lot of surrealist cinema, the, the story is only as important as the imagery that surrounds it. Um, have you seen um, Un Chien Andalou, which is the most famous surrealist film? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Translates as an, an Andalusian dog, but the, no, it's, the title doesn't really make sense. It's a film made by Salvador Dali and Louis Buñuel, who was from the surrealist movement, yeah. and features a very famous sequence of um, a woman having her eye sliced open, or what appears to have an eye sliced Lovely. open. But the thing is, it's only an appearance. It doesn't <laughs> yes. actually happen. And the thing about that is that the film ostensibly has no story at all, but because of the way that the images are composed, the way that it cuts from, like I say, the shot of someone's face to the shot of the moon and so forth, yeah. you sort of pick, you piece together and almost invent your own story while you're watching it. And it's sort of the same with the Razorhead. There is, there is a basic story going on, so there is narrative, but you sort of bring your own prejudices or you know, preconceptions to it and you know, take from it what you will. The basic story is that you have a man called Henry, who's played by Jack Nance, who, if you've seen the posters, is the one with the, the foot-high hair, yeah. which is you know, sticking up and looking very strange. That's where Jedward got their inspiration from. <laughs> it might well be. I mean, <laughs> if they come out and admit that, I'll think more highly of them. Um, <laughs> so... You have a man called Henry who lives in an unnamed city and is on vacation from his job, which means, you know, we don't have to worry about where he works. He goes over to see his estranged girlfriend to discover that he has become the father of a strange mutated baby which has got no arms or legs and a beak-like mouth and needs constant care and attention. And he's told that he's got to take care of it and to do the honourable thing because he hasn't got the money to marry his girlfriend. Very soon she leaves because the baby screams all night and she can't stand it. And he is left alone with this child wondering how on earth this could have come from him and wondering what on earth he's going to do with it. Just as it's hard to imagine cinema without Steven Spielberg or Stanley Kubrick, it's very, very difficult to imagine the notion of cinema without David Lynch because he has effectively, over a career spanning nearly 40 years, has effectively rewritten the book for surrealist filmmaking. So that even someone like Roger Ebert, who, you know, is not a big fan of his films. Famously, Roger Ebert described um, Blue Velvet as about the most reprehensible film of 1986, which is a compliment as far as he's concerned. Even people who aren't sort of in tune with his form of filmmaking would admit that the world would be a duller place without him. And if you don't, if you need proof of that, you only have to look at Eraserhead, which is still one of the most mesmerizing and extraordinary debut features ever made. It's an interesting contrast as to, to kind of to bring it back to the Star Wars thing. To see that Star Wars and Eraserhead came out in the same year, it's an interesting historical point of how American cinema was fracturing. Because up until then, when you'd have when you had the new Hollywood movement in which mainstream entertainment was it was considered quite highbrow in America. It was stuff yeah. like um, 
Last Picture Show or the Godfather Trilogy and so forth. Stuff that you know, is considered cerebral today, but also yeah. took bucket loads of money. Yeah. Whereas, you no, know, then you get Jaws in 1975, which creates the modern blockbuster. And then in the middle of 1977, you have American cinema sort of splitting in two. So on the one hand, Star Wars comes in, with, you know, going for the broadest popular appeal, going for popcorn, going for entertainment, yeah. and doing it very well, it must be admitted. But the, with the characters that are much more pantomime and, you know, lots has been written about Star Wars infantilizing American audiences, and you can read into that <laughs> as much as you like. And on the other hand, you have what becomes the arthouse crowd who sort of bond to a razorhead, which gets seen by very few people, yeah. but is actually the film that is about moving the notion of cinema onwards rather than being a yeah. money-making exercise. I mean, I'm trying to be fair as possible to George Lucas because the first Star Wars film is actually quite good. Part of the mystique about Eraserhead lies in the fact that even after 34 years, we know very, very little about the process of how it was made. I mean, Lynch is famously reserved about, you no, know, whenever he's interviewed about um, his films and asked what do they mean, he always says something along the lines of, well, sometimes I don't even know what they mean and all interpretations are valid. I can't tell you what these images mean because I just put them on screen. That doesn't mean I know exactly all about them. And he used yeah. the analogy of if you've got a book and you want to ask the author what this means, you can't just dig him up and ask him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, but even more so with the razor head, the, the fact that there are no, there are no making of documentaries like they are for The Elephant Man and all these other films. Yeah. There is no production footage like we don't have access to all the other footage that he didn't use and even in the interviews that lynch gave about the making of a razorhead they focus on his emotional stance at the time rather than actually what happened on the set yeah so it's interesting that in an age when potentially you can have an entire film spoiled on the internet months before it sees the light of day that you actually find a film out there which is which has an air of and an, an enigmatic quality to it of you're not quite sure what you're going to get because you've got no idea about how yeah. this was made the film is in many ways a continuation of Lynch's interest in photography. I mean, if you look at his his photography, particularly then, but also now, there is an interest in post-industrial society. And he, he often photographs um, abandoned factories or rusted machinery, the sort of stuff which, when they leave a factory, it's too heavy to move, so they just leave it there to rust to pieces yeah. and fall apart. And he's always been fascinated by the idea of industrial landscapes, which are past their prime and are starting to fall into disrepair and a razor head makes use of this fascination and it depicts a vision of post-industrial society which is so bleak and so strange that it makes the worker city in metropolis look like the costa del sol because you remember the worker city in yes, metropolis indeed, in yes. which it's you know the yeah. city under the ground with the you know the people walking through the the um the portcullis just trudging in motion yeah. and it's all bleak and grim that looks like a holiday camp compared to the city in a razor head and Every single building in this city looks like it's either a relic of a bygone age, because Henry's flat has got sort of Art Deco linings, and it's got one yeah. of those old-fashioned Otis lifts with the, with the grill across, like the ones in Angel Heart. And there is a feeling of just everything coming apart at the seams, and the world sort of groaning under the weight of man's progress, and that's reflected in the soundtrack work of Alan Sprett, where there's no real songs or pieces, but just these kind of strange wails and groans, as though, like I say, the earth is is groaning under the weight of all this machinery and all this progress that man has invented but which has now become obsolete and they don't quite know what to do with it. By creating such a dark and desolate landscape, Lynch immediately puts us in the story because he makes us feel like an isolated observer. He makes us feel like we're the only thing that's living in a world surrounded yeah. by death and you kind of feel immediately out of place. You get that sense that you do in all of Lynch's best work, which is complete and total unease, but in a way that you can't stop yourself from looking at it. It's, no, that's what mesmerism is. And 
this feeling of alienation spills over into the characters. You have um, Henry's father-in-law, who who is a plumber, and talks about how you know the city didn't used to be used to just need a little bit of plumbing, and now it's become a hellhole because there's pipes running through everyone's house, and there's pipes running through the head, and so forth. It's the idea of industrial society. You no know, biting man back. You know the yeah. man who sort of gave it his birth. And now the machinery is taking over, and you no know, cramping man style, <laughs> to put it one way. And the conversations are full of those awkward silences that would become indicative of Lynch's work, where you know the characters will often say nothing, and it'll just cut between their faces while just this kind of yeah desolate landscape, which you can link back to something like. Um, Harold Pinter, or before him Samuel Beckett, because there's the idea in Crap's Last Tape and Endgame of characters who are essentially waiting for death. Because in Endgame you've got the two characters, one of whom can't sit down, one of whom can't stand up, and then their mother and father who live in dustbins. And it's the idea of neither of them wants to move, both of them hate each other, but both of them slightly <laughs> need each other, and yeah. just nothing happens. But the point is that nothing happens because it can't happen. There is a comparison with Alien on one level, because both films are on their biggest level about the male fear of pregnancy and the Freudian connotation of offspring. Many people have speculated that the whole film is actually an allegory for Lynch's anxiety surrounding the birth of his daughter Jennifer Lynch, including Jennifer Lynch herself, who's actually gone on to make a couple of films. Um, regardless of whether or not that is true, in the sense that Lynch says it's true, that theme is writ large throughout A Razorhead, and it manifests itself in a number of sinister ways. I mean, when Henry discovers that he is a father, instead of reacting with delight and saying, oh, fantastic, you know, I've become a father, I've got a son yeah. or a daughter, whatever, he, his main reaction is fear. Not fear of the parent's reaction for the fact that this child has been born out of wetlock, but just, well, what have I created? What, have I, what burden have I put on myself and on her? And the film begins with, you know, in classic surrealist fashion, a shot of Jack Nance's face with this strange sort of apparition of a child emanating from his mouth and diving headfirst into a pool of water as if this creature this monster let's face it had come from the deepest darkest yeah. depths of his unconsciousness and there's if you want to read into the freudian side of it you can argue that the baby is the id to henry's ego it's the it's the monster which you know is fighting against yeah. the civilized quiet dignified face of henry and in the end it's about the film is about him sort of fighting with those two elements and the, the ego triumphing, all being not entirely triumphing. And over the course of the film, the baby becomes a lot more vindictive of Henry, which, if, again, with the Freudian stuff, it's, it's the id wanting to come yeah. out and the monster wanting to come out. So at the start of the film, it's just needing to be constantly fed and it's crying all the time. It, it screams all the way through the night, so his girlfriend says, I can't take it yeah. anymore, you take care of it, it's your baby. But then it starts to get more vindictive when um, Henry tries to leave the apartment and it cries every time he opens the door. And then... He goes across the hall briefly to where there's this other girl whom he's sort of been having a romantic tryst with, but she's got another boyfriend now, and he comes back into the room and the baby is laughing breathlessly at him, as if to say, <laughs> I'm not going to let you do anything now. Um, within that development, a Razorhead also becomes a film about responsibility, in which the child is not just the physicalization of Henry's id, but of his, conscious, of his conscience. And... Although he's not exactly the philandering type, he does entertain having relationships with the other women, and that, whether it's the girl across the hall who, you know, has, who ends up having the other boyfriend and, like I say, the baby yeah. laughs at him. Or there, is, there are a number of sequences in which he stares into a radiator and he sees this, this blonde girl with strange sort of puffed-out cheeks dancing and singing in heaven, everything is fine, which is just really, really strange. Isn't it? Yes, exactly. I mean, there are hints of 
Pinocchio in a way in the the relationship between the father and the son because we we now think of Pinocchio in terms of you know, the moral source of Pinocchio it's Jiminy Cricket telling Pinocchio what to do and being a yeah. little thing on his shoulder but in fact in the early parts of the Pinocchio story and indeed the Disney film Geppetto is the one who is trying to be the moral guide and Pinocchio is the the, the errant son yeah and there's much the same thing here the only difference is that there is no reconciliation in as in whereas in Pinocchio he becomes a real boy sorry if I've spoiled it um, <laughs> It been, we know that one. Well. Yeah, I think it's, it's been over 70 years. In this, there is, well, there's a recon the reconciliation involves scissors, let's put it that way. Mm. Um, Lynch has described Razorhead as his most spiritual and personal film, and there's a couple of reasons for that. On the one hand, when he was making this film, he was very depressed, very anxious, but he became involved with the Transcendental Meditation Movement, which is known as TM, which was the uh, the teachings of this guy called Maharishi Maharishi Yogi, who taught the Beatles in the late 60s. He was the guy whom they went to see when they went off to yes. India. You remember him, um, his television broadcast? Yes, when yes. He, this sort of giggly guy with the grey beard. And, yes. Yes, no, interesting sort of guy. I mean, this was around the same time, of course, when Pete Townsend was getting into Maya Barber, and no, Indian yeah. mysticism was quite popular among, yeah. among the well-to-do. So there's that aspect to it. On the other hand, he claims, you know, in the little bits and in interviews that he has given away, he said that he he got to a point about halfway through the production when he had all this footage and he didn't know what it meant, and he randomly started reading the Bible, as you do, and he found a certain passage, which he won't reveal what it is, closed the book and said, I know what the film means now, and he was able to finish it a lot quicker. And again, I don't know which passage that was, but there are big sort of Old Testament overtones of it. I mean, there's there's you know, a large subtext about the sins of the father being visited on the son, which is from the book of Exodus. But you could also see there's an image of which who turned, of a man inside the moon who turns up at the start of the end of the film just moving lots of levers around and a lot of people have written into that as being sort of God setting it, setting all of this up yeah. in motion. On the other hand, if you don't want to read into the spiritual stuff and you want to go back to the Freudian, you could almost argue that, um, that because there's a lot about, um, Freud famously said, God is our father's deified as a cosmic entity in a slightly pretentious way. But what he meant by that was that the notion of a supernatural being is actually a projection of our own, of our own wicked, you know, Freudian souls. And the idea of, that's reflected in the fact that, um, the man in the moon, if you want to call him God or whatever, has got the same sort of facial disfigurement as the baby. So it's the idea that Henry's visions of the man in the moon are not so much God setting this in motion and, you know, yeah. meeting out judgment on Henry, so much as Henry creating the idea of God as a way of, you know, distancing himself from the punishment inflicted on him by the child, if it all makes sense. When you have the lady in the radiator dancing, and like I said, there's this strange sequence where now, one time she comes along and sings this song called In Heaven Everything Is Fine, which I can't do justice to, but it's really, really creepy. But another time she is standing on this stage in the middle of the radiator, dancing on, like, copies of the apparition of the child that we saw at the beginning of the film. And it's, it's almost the idea of she's saying to Henry, even though she's not actually physically saying anything, I am the source of your salvation and redemption, sort of, you know, fall in love with me. Yeah. So it's taking on the siren-like role of I can take away all your problems. And there is a sequence at the end where after the baby has, well, for want of a better word, ceased to be, there's a sequence where Henry meets the girl in the radiator face to face and then the screen fades to white. And it's almost like you could read into that like he's gone to heaven, like it's yeah. you know, him finding redemption or is it something completely different? And there are clear lines through with 
I mean, the idea of having a sort of theatrical play within a film is quite a, an interesting Lynchian trait. It's later seen in his film Mulholland Drive, because there's a moment in Mulholland Drive where um, Betty and um, Rita, played by um, Naomi Watson, uh, Laura and Anna Haring, go to this club called Silencio, where this uh, singer is performing in Spanish. And that's the moment in the film when the worlds, you know, with the identity sort of switch around. It's very difficult to describe if you haven't seen Mulholland Drive, but it is an extraordinary moment where you have this singer singing this fantastic song called Giorando, and it's really mesmerizing, but it's the idea of, you know, having a theatrical performance within a film to sort of make a point yeah. about where reality ends and fantasy begins. I mean, it's I think that all of the interpretations of a razor head are valid, whether you take the spiritual line or the Freudian line, or just it's about a guy trying to get divorced from his girlfriend yeah. and who doesn't want the kid. Because, no, nothing in the content of a razor head can be explained for certain, either because Lynch doesn't know or won't tell, or simply because it's very open-ended. But I think what is absolutely agreeable is the special effects, which are absolutely terrifying. And I bet they are, yes. Yes, I mean, there's all sorts of rumours about how they were made. The most common theory about how that baby was constructed, because you have this sort of, like I say, an almost alien-like beak head, and then the body's wrapped in bandages. And one person, I think it was actually Vincent Canby, suggested that it was a pickled calf fetus, which Lynch had sort of found <laughs> yeah. and animated from within. And Lynch wrote him a letter saying, no, I just found it. And when I finished filming, I buried it somewhere, mm. which is a classic Lynch response of, I don't feel the need to dignify that. Just yeah. make, you know, whatever you think is valid. But whatever created that baby, its twisted shape and its harrowing cries, they sort of burn into our subconscious and they genuinely freak us out. I mean, it isn't just, here's a shocking baby. Thing. Yeah, because there is so much you can read into it, and it's it's it feels like a character, even though you know that it's a guy, you no, know, it's a puppet, or it's done yeah. with animatronics or whatever it was done, and it's death throes when Henry, like I say, takes the scissors to it. It's really nerve shredding because up until that point, you've really learned to almost bond with it, albeit in a way of being more freaked out with it than you know, yeah. being affectionately drawn to it. So to sum up, it is a really extraordinary film. It's a dark and twisted and often very difficult, but not in a bad way, film to watch. I do think it's one of Lynch's very best films. Uh, it's, you know, immaculately directed. It's a unique cinematic vision, which is very, very frightening, but also deeply visceral and dripping with substance. I think it's a high point in surrealist cinema. You no, know, for me, it's up there with Anshan Andalou and a lot of Louis Buñuel's later work, which almost came close enough to that. And if you have any interest in cinema at all, you will see it as soon as possible. Right. Very baffling. Yes. Right. As all Lynch films should be. We'll have a look at the new releases after this. Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. And the movie hour with Daniel Mumby and Richard Dale. Right, Daniel, new releases. Aren't you forgetting something? Uh, yes, next week's cult classic. Spetters, or Spetters, as we should probably be saying. Um, 1980 coming-of-age film, one of Paul Verhoeven's early Dutch-language efforts. Right. I shall brush up on my Dutch. Yes, it should right. be. It'll be pretty full on. Right. Okay. Shall we start with uh, Conran the Barbarian? Conan the Conran Barbarian. The bar <laughs> yes. Conan the Conran Barbarian. Conran Black the Barbarian. Yes. So, remake of the 1982 Swords and Sorcery epic based loosely on the historical novels by Robert E. Howard. The original famously launched the career of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Would you have seen the original Conan the Barbarian first time around? I, I guess I may have done, yes. I yes. can't remember now. Yeah. And do you remember what you thought of it? 
Okay, well, no, launched the career of Arnold Schwarzenegger and produced two sequels of its own, Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja, the latter of which is absolutely laughable, but in a slightly good way. Um, this remake is helmed by Marcus Nispel, who directed the remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also made the prequel to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and most recently remade Friday the 13th, all of which were produced by Michael Bay. Um, the story is that Conan, who's played by Jason Momoa, whom I think is in... Game of Thrones, but I'm, I'm not up on recent television. He's a young warrior who, at the beginning of the film, his village is pillaged and burned, and after many years in the wilderness, you know, basically working out to get a massive set of pecs, he comes back from the wilderness to uh, swear revenge on the warlord who killed his father. The warlord in the original version was played by Max von Sudov, who of course was in Flash Gordon two years earlier, Yeah. and in this version he's played by Stephen Lang. Um, the thing is, the original film, the Schwarzenegger film, was not a brilliant piece of work by any means. I mean, it was silly and quite stupid, but it was also very good fun. I mean, you had pretty good battle choreography, camp action scenes. No, it wasn't remarkable, but it was kind of good, disposable, late-night tosh. And certainly if you watch Red Sonja, which is sort of Conan the Barbarian, made by a lesser director with you no know, less of the substance, then you can clearly see the potential for a good, fun, campy yeah. action film. The problem with, or the central problem with this version is that it isn't fun. It's a lot gorier than the 80s version, and the gore doesn't really serve any purpose apart from saying, I'm holding out for the violence. You know, for what good reason, even though it's only a 15 certificate. The story, which in the original was already quite thin, is very badly told with no sense of conviction. The performances are pedestrian at best. I mean, Jason Momoa, no, with the best will in the world, is a pretty boy. He doesn't have the, the, the chisel-jawed yeah. charisma of Schwarzenegger, even though Schwarzenegger in his early performances were quite wooden. There's a story that when he was, when he did Red Sonja, he was, he famously went on record as saying that was the only film that he was personally ashamed of, and he subsequently used it to punish his children, that whenever they were born, he said, you have to go and watch Red Sonja to show how bad I was. And the visuals of the film are totally derivative. I mean, there's a little bit from Clash of the Titans, the recent remake, there's a little bit of Prince of Persia, there's a little bit of 300, but with none the slightly ridiculous fun of 300 and to cap it all it's in 3d so my advice is either rent the original or go and see either of the sequels no but you might i mean you might need a bit of a six-pack to get through red sonia because it's total pants but it'll be more fun than the new version of conan the barbarian right okay an Anne Hathaway film next. One Day, which is an adaptation of the international number one much-loved bestseller, which has been advertised everywhere. The, uh, the novel and the screenplay are written by David Nichols, directed by Lona Scherfig, who previously made An Education, which was the film that launched the career of Kerry Mulligan. Do you remember An Education? Yes. Did, yeah. you, did you like it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, it's yes. pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the story follows two people, um, Emma, who's played by Anne Hathaway, and Dexter, played by Jim Sturgis, who we talked about a few weeks ago because he's the guy who stars in Philip Ridley's Heartless. Yes. And uh, they meet on one day in 1988 and form an emotional bond of some description. It's ambiguous as to whether they're friends or in love and to what extent. And from there, we see them reuniting on one day a year for the next 20 years, and we see them grow apart and grow up and so forth. We see their careers changing. One of them gets married. One of them, you know, guess which one becomes a lesbian, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you see their lives sort of play out. Like I said, there's been an awful lot of interest in this. I haven't read the book, but I have a couple of friends who really love the book and pr approached the idea of a film adaptation with some trepidation. And I wanted, when I was, you know, kind of researching this, to like it, because both of the stars have some kind of pedigree in this. I mean, Jim Sturgis 
made his name in the Beatles romance film Across the Universe, where they took yeah. a bunch of Beatles songs and loosely strung them into a romantic narrative, you know, ropey construction, but his performance was quite good. And Anne Hathaway, you know, before she started, before she got cast as Catwoman in The Dark Knight, in The Dark Knight Rises, she started off in things like The Princess Diaries and so forth. So there is, there is a certain amount of precedent in their careers for doing sort of light-hearted, slightly frothy, but enjoyable romantic drama. In the end, it is a little bit disappointing, and all the things that are wrong with it are things that demonstrate the difference between books and films. I mean, we can spend all day arguing which is superior, either in terms of this specific book or in books and films as different yeah. media, but you have to accept that they are two completely different forms of presentation. The fact that David Nichols wrote both the novel and the screenplay would seem to suggest that it might be a fault with the novel rather than with the, the screenplay in and of itself. Like I said, I haven't read the book, but the fact that he's that closely involved seems to imply that there's actually something up with the source rather than anything else. Yeah. And you look at something like the adaptation of The History Boys, great Alan Bennett play which works fantastically on stage, but the film is a bit inert, it just sort of sits there on screen. The biggest problem with the film for me is the device of the meeting on the same day for for 20 years, which is very contrived. I mean, it might not feel contrived in the book, but in the film, it undercuts the idea of them just being friends who are sort of randomly passing each yeah. other and uh, sort of intertwining. And outside of the device, the story is actually quite ordinary because there's two people who sort of meet and become friends and then you know, drift apart and might end up together, but we don't quite know. So I like and I like the stars. I don't think Anne Hathaway's English accent is anything like as terrible as people have said, <laughs> but it's just a bit, like I say, inert and a bit disappointing. Right, okay. Next one is Final Destination 5. Latest in the Final Destination series, the previous one being called The Final Destination, which says a lot... Obviously of got it wrong. Yes. Although the thing is that this is... Although it's the fifth film in the sequel series, it is technically a prequel to all the rest, just to confuse us even more. It's like the Star Wars thing, if you make the first three and then go back to the beginning. And is it a prequel that needed telling? Probably not, but for reasons that I'll come along, it's directed by first-time director Stephen Quayle. The story, like all the other... Have you seen any of the other Final Destination films? No. The story, basically, it's always the same, that, you know, one of... There's a group of characters, usually teenagers. One of them has a premonition of an event in which they're all going to die, so I think in the first film, it's a plane crash that they're all going to be involved in, so they, they try and cheat death by not getting involved. And in this case, one of them has a premonition of, uh, no, a bridge collapsing and them all going over the edge on a bus, so they say we're not going to get on the bus, they escape death, only for death to start tracking them down and dispatching them one by one in increasingly gory and yucky ways, most of which are in the trailer. I mean, you can you can cover your ears at this point if you don't want to know, because you will find... I mean, there's, there's a sequence of someone getting bisected by the wing of an aeroplane or someone having acupuncture and then falling off the bench with the needles Lovely. on his chest and, and there's someone getting laser eye surgery where there's a Clockwork Orange reference, so I immediately start getting cross, because anything that... You, if you're going to reference Clockwork Orange, you need to do it properly. It is completely unremarkable. I mean, like the, the previous instalment, it's in 3D, and the 3D adds very little, and there's lots of shots um, of stuff falling into people's vision, like, you know, nails flying out or panes of glass lighting up, but none of that stuff is anything like as scary as, for instance, the sequence in The Omen when David Warner's head gets cut off by the pane of glass, because, no, that's because that's the same kind of shot of a pane of glass flying towards you, but it's really, really scary because, actually, you care about these characters. There's another distinctive thing is that it features... If you're a horror fan, the I can't remember the actor's name, but he's the guy who plays the lead in Candyman, which is a very interesting 90s uh, horror thriller based upon a novel by Clive Barker, in which you have this strange sort of hook-handed 
bogeyman and there's a sequence where the heroine played by Virginia Madsen sort of uncovers him and he opens his chest to find that there's a beehive where his heart should be and sort of bees come out. Yeah, I really, remember that, yes. You, you saw Cannon. Yeah, I did, yes. It's a really good film, isn't it? It's just that strange strange quality and he's got that very deep variety voice. <laughs> so it's nothing to write home about and the 3D is unnecessary but if you it there's enough in there for the gore hounds among us which i'm not massively a gore hound and it's completely innocuous and it'll be out in two or three weeks okay one that's getting very good critical acclaim is R. danish prison drama um directed by first timers um hope i'm pronouncing this right tobias lindholm and michael noah uh, the story follows an unnamed prisoner who's known only as R, who is sent to the toughest ward of Denmark's toughest prison for a two-year stretch, and uh, quickly learns that he, in order to survive with the with the tough climate in the prison, he has to build up loyalties with the different ethnic and racial groups that are in there. It's it's a pretty well constructed, quite modest little prison movie. It's about ninety minutes long, and it's very well acted. I mean, some of the scenes in the trailer are quite brutal, you know, in terms of realistic depiction of blood yeah. and being punched and so forth. But they're meant to be disturb. They're meant to be disturbing. My only reservation with the film is that I'm not entirely sure whether it's saying anything new. And to use a comparison again, there was a film about eighteen months ago now called A Prophet, which was a, a French uh, Arabic co-production of uh, and. Uh, Taha Rahim plays a guy who is sent to prison and in order to survive he uh, has to carry out an assassination attempt which involves him sort of secreting a razor blade in his mouth and you know, killing a yeah. guy. And the thing that that film did was that it managed to be very gritty, very grim, realistic prison drama but it also had the sort of the spiritual, supernatural inside of something like, well, Shawshank Redemption to some extent, or you can go further back to Midnight Express, which is you know about I think it's John Hurt who gets thrown into yeah. a Turkish prison and spends something like thirty years in there. So I don't think it's going to be up there with a prophet, but it looks fairly well made, and although you might have to travel to see it, it looks all right. Okay, Mescada, uh, also known as As Blunt Runs Deep, um, crime drama directed by uh, Josh Sternfeld, who previously made a film called Winter Solstice, starring Nick Stahl, whom some people might remember as John Connor in Terminator Three. Do you see Terminator Three when it came out about uh, eight years ago now? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, oh, sort of. They're all the same to me. Not not my favourites, I have to say. Really? You, you weren't a fan of the second one either, then? Or the first. What was wrong with the first? It's just... dull. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think Terminator 3 was anything as bad as it could have been, let's put it that way. Um, so, Stahl plays a guy called Noah Corden, who is a detective in charge of investigating the murder of a young boy in a burglary gone wrong in uh, the town of Hilliard, which is on the... Uh, which is somewhere in America. The only clue that he has in solving this case is a scrap of paper which links him to his own hometown of Caswell, and it turns out that there may be something to do with the town's economic troubles and a growing pharmaceutical company which is going to create a lot of jobs in one yeah. place and take them away from another. It's only got a very brief cinema release. It's going to come out on DVD on September the 5th, and in many ways it is a straight-to-DVD release because it is very generic. You have, you know, the idea of... It, is, it even says in the trailer, you know, towns have secrets, you know, blah, 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 and so forth. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, you're yawning, and, and that's fair enough. I mean, there have been loads and loads of it. It's a very familiar trope in crime yeah. stories, and uh, it will probably have some live on DVD or possibly late-night television. Yeah. But it's unremarkably directed. The performances are okay. I mean, Nick Stoll is all right, and it's, there's just no need to dash out to see it in cinemas. Okay, right. Finally, the film of the week, The Skin I Live In. New film from uh, Pedro Almodovar, who is widely regarded as the master of Spanish melodrama. He's famous recently for working with Penelope Cruz. They made things like Volver yeah. and Broken Embraces together. You, you like Penelope Cruz? Yes. Yeah. Have you seen her? Do you like her in Vanilla Sky? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
because she's also in the original Spanish version of that called Open Your Eyes, which is arguably a much better film, but yeah. no, Vanilla Sky's all right. Based upon the novel Tarantula by uh, Thierry Lonke, and the story follows a plastic surgeon played by Antonio Banderas, who, um, whose wife died in a burning car 12 years before the events of the film, and at the beginning of the f and since that incident, he has spent all his life trying to create this new kind of skin which will withstand any kind of assault and crucially cannot be burnt. So it's a fire-resistant skin. Now he, he thinks, okay, I've finally cracked it. All I need is a human guinea pig to try it out. Well, oh. Now, I went to the Tyneside on Tuesday to see Sarah's Key, which we reviewed a few weeks yeah. ago, and this was one of the trailers. And, no, I haven't seen many of Atmodala's films, though I quite like Volver. And my immediate reaction was that I was really creeped out with him. I thought... Blimey, he's turned to the Georges Franjou. Now, that probably won't mean a lot to you, but there is a very famous Georges Franjou film from 1959 called Eyes Without a Face. Yeah. Yeah, which is, um, no, there's a mad scientist whose daughter is horribly disfigured in a car accident, and he tries to reconstruct her face by essentially stealing other people's. And it's the film from which we get the, the image of the flat white facial mask, which then carries over into Leatherface or Yul Brynner's mask in Westworld. It's a very iconic horror image. And it's a really terrifying film and you if i describe it as you know a 1950s black and white film in french language you'd think oh it's not going to be creepy at all but watch the face transplant scene yeah it's absolutely nerve shredding yeah. um there are clear hints of that in this i mean apart, apart from the fact that amber Delvar has admitted that franji was a sort of an, an icon for him when he was a young filmmaker the fact that the the lead woman if you've seen the advertising for this has a sort of facial mask which is all white and covers all her face that's a clear nod to fraju there's also i suppose a, a connection with um the abominable dr fibes the vincent price film from the <laughs> early 70s yeah you know when he it's that's the one in which he says the great line pray speak quietly every sound you make is exquisite agony to me <laughs> but that, that's the film yeah. in which you know he's the obsessive doctor whose wife has died on the operating table and he's inflicting the ten plagues of europe of the ten plagues of europe the ten plagues of egypt on the world as as yeah. retribution because it's, it's the same idea of a man who is driven to extreme obsession and vengeance because of something that happened to his wife i would thoroughly recommend it like all great horror it is not about gore or guts it is about you know grief or loss or obsession and just the chill of seeing something that you're not supposed to see and like i do believe in you no know, the characters i think antonio banderas is right back on form after a few years you no know, doing Which the shrek series when yeah. he's being you know, a bit up and down and it'll be at the time side from this week so catch it while you can it's thoroughly recommended right so that's the film of the week it is absolutely right and out of the others that we've reviewed well out of the other new releases you mean or, yeah um i suppose the only other one i would say is well r is probably the other recommendation but you might have to travel to see it because i don't think the time side are doing that this week okay well thanks very much and you'll be back thursday between one and three yes and I next will. saturday between 10 and 11 yes. when we will be looking at spetters yes a bit of paul verhoven to lighten up your day great <laughs> sounds fun indeed lion heart radio the voice of northumberland